0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories,
2: and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 399. And today in the show, we're joined by wildlife and habitat consultant, Rob Hawberry, to discuss late season hunting and ideas for improving deer and wildlife habitat. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today we are talking with Rob Hawbury. Rob is a land specialist for Whitetail Properties as well as uh, a consultant. He runs a, a wildlife and uh, forestry consulting business. And Rob actually joined us on the Back 40 this summer and and helped us out with some trees and tree plantings. And, And during that time with him, I realized that he has got a lot to offer when it comes to ideas around both how to hunt deer, and how to improve a piece of ground for deer and other wildlife. Um, just a great source of knowledge. And today that's what I wanted to do was was get him talking on all those topics. So what we're going to dive into here momentarily is a little bit around Rob's late season hunting plans, the types of things he's paying attention to, as well as a little bit more generically things he thinks about just when it comes to hunting a small property in general, especially with lots of pressure around you. He has a, a unique situation on his home farm. And and he has some ideas around that that I thought were pretty interesting. And then for the majority of our time, we then are going to talk through ways to develop a plan for improving your property, whether it's 20 acres or 200 acres. Uh, This is a great time of year here at the end of the year to be thinking about what we want to do this next time around. So we discuss how to audit your property, how to determine where to start, how to prioritize projects, and then discussing everything from improving food sources to, you know, improving cover and timber stands or creating brand new cover in the middle of fields. We talk about food plots. We talk about evergreen tree plantings. We talk about planting orchards uh, and everything in between. So if you are into just hunting, we got something for you. And then if you're into improving ground, we've got that as well. It's a fun talk. Rob's got a lot to offer, so I'm just going to let us dive right into it. We're here at the very end of the year, so uh, I just want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year. I hope it's been a good year, although I know it's been tough for a lot of folks. I hope you've been able to uh, weather the storm and find some silver linings, and uh, we're going to head into 2021 with some optimism, is what I hope. We're going to have a better year, everyone. That's what I believe, and uh, let's, let's make that a reality. Real quick, before we uh, get to Rob's chat, a couple quick plugs. I'll just uh, let you all know that the Back 40 series is completed. That show that I host, it's now all out there. It's on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. You'll get to see Rob in one of those episodes as he helped bring out and help us get started with some of our tree plantings in episode two. So uh, make sure to check that out. I hope it's something you enjoy and can learn from and and maybe be inspired by a little. Put a ton of blood, sweat, and tears into it. So uh, head on over, scope that out. Uh, And then finally, if you got some gift cards for Christmas or maybe a little cash in your stocking and you're looking for something to buy, Um, in particular, I'm going to recommend some books because I'm a book nerd. I love reading. I'd recommend checking out the new book from Meat Eater, which is The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. That's a dang good option. Or if you're looking for more of a a history and adventure read, I got to suggest That Wild Country. That's the book that I wrote and had published last year that I'm super proud of and would love for you to give a read. Uh, I thank you for your support on that one and all of this. So that's it for me. Thanks, and let's get to my conversation with Rob Hawbury. All right, with me now on the line is Rob Hawbury. Rob, thank you so much for making the time to do this.
1: Great to be with you, Mark. Uh, Not a problem at all.
2: Yeah, I uh, as we were just talking about before we started recording, we had a we had a quick visit this summer, and that left me wanting to have a real deep dive with you for for months now. So I'm excited to be able to do this. I want to talk through a bunch of different things, everything from late season hunting to you know land management throughout the year. Uh, but before that, I guess I would be curious to hear from you what your life looks like? What's the day in the life of Rob Hawbury look like? Because I I introduced you a second ago uh, before we started recording as someone who, you know, consults and you're also a land specialist for whitetail properties. But people hear about folks that do that. They hear about people that are land consultants or, or habitat management consultants or forestry consultants. That's a term we hear a lot, but I'm not sure people always know what that looks like in reality. What what does a day in the life look like for someone like you?
1: well the the beauty of of my job and and how I've been blessed immensely by God is every day, every single day is something different. Uh, you know, I started my career back in nineteen ninety after I graduated from Purdue, had a double major in forest management, and wildlife management. Uh, I worked 16 months with the Indiana Division of Fish and Wildlife with their Forest Wildlife Division, and I absolutely love that job. and And my true passion is habitat management uh, for wildlife species. I just love that, but it's hard to make a living in wildlife habitat. It, it really is, unless you're, you know, one of the top research biologists or you know, a Grant Woods or somebody like that. And uh, so. My, my career tailored into forestry because I had the double major. Uh, I worked for a hardwood lumber company and then after a few years I started my own forestry consulting business. Um, and with that, after uh, 15 or 20 years I was called by Whitetail Properties, a friend of mine worked for them and gave them my name. and. Uh, You know, my business has kind of transitioned a little bit now that I'm a a forestry consultant, a habitat consultant, and I'm also a land specialist with Whitetail Properties. Every single day is something different. Uh, One day I'm looking at a parcel of land that somebody wants to sell. Uh, The next day I'm showing a property that somebody wants to buy. Two days later, I'm marking a stand of timber in uh, in southern Indiana, and I'll spend two or three or five days on that, however long it takes me to finish that. Uh, and maybe the next week, I'm over in uh, west central Indiana, uh, looking at 300 acres with a landowner wanting to improve his habitat, and he wants me to write a management plan. So every day is something different, every day is something unique, and that is what I absolutely love about my work. I'm 57 years old uh, and I, I really don't have a set date or year that I want to retire because I still love what I do. Uh, it's, just, it's just that simple. So uh, I've been really blessed in that regard. So every day is, every day is uh, different. Every day presents a, a different and unique challenge. Um, at first it was a little bit difficult trying to juggle all three aspects with the real estate and, uh, the forestry and the habitat, but I've gotten to a point now, um, to where, um, you know, I know how far I can stretch myself. Um, so it's, it's been, it's been a real blessing and, and I, I just, I, I enjoy getting out of bed every single day. I, I just really do.
2: Yeah. That's, that's the dream right there. With all that going on, do you, uh, do you find any time to hunt? Because it's funny, you hear from folks that work within this industry, and from the outside it seems like, oh, they just must hunt every day. But then lots of times the work during this time of the year could be really busy. Is that the case for you, or do you able, are you able to schedule things so that you can actually get out and practice what you preach still?
1: Uh, it's difficult. Uh, I have to admit, uh, you know, this hunting season I've hunted five days um and and that's that's been it since october 1st uh i hurt. i actually hurt my arm uh using a piece of equipment so and it was my 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 draw arm for my bow so i wasn't able to bow hunt at all Um, but that allowed me to get some things caught up um, uh, in the field Uh, but a lot of people take a lot of time off during hunting season and you know if you get a couple warm days and the deer aren't moving Uh, They'll call you and they want to see properties. And sometimes you just have to take that opportunity when it arises. Uh, So I try to make my schedule um, to where, uh, you know, I can, it's not just rock solid. Sometimes, you know, I, I can arrange things a little bit, but my wife is really good about telling me you need to take the week that you want to hunt and just turn your phone off and hunt that week.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and I'm blessed to have a wife that wants me to do that. <laughs> uh, but yes. my, my problem is, is I just don't like to turn anybody down. Uh, if somebody calls me and wants to look at a property, I want to get there as soon as I can. If somebody calls me and wants to see a property, I want to show it to them as soon as I can. If, if an individual calls me, and they're wanting me to look at a track of timber or do some habitat consulting for them i want to try to reach out and make it as convenient on them as i possibly can so sometimes i just have to arrange my schedule now the what makes it a little bit easier for me is um i mainly and i do and i do mean mainly i mainly just hunt my farm which is right out my back door um so uh the, the the buck I killed on opening day this year I'd been after for two years and I shot him 200 yards behind my house. Um, so you know I I I know the deer by watching them and by trail camera and everything. And you know I don't have to leave the house at 4 a.m. to try to get my stand by six or 6:15. Uh, you know I can I can walk out the back door and be in my at six and be in my stand at 6:10. And and I, I absolutely love that. I mean I absolutely
2: love that. Yeah, that's pretty darn cool. I, I gotta, I have to ask about this story then. the The opening day behind the house buck, yeah. two year history. Uh, how did it start and how did it end?
1: I, I I had this buck on my trail cameras last fall. I was seeing him quite a bit, especially in the middle of the morning. I would, I I had him on trail camera anywhere between nine thirty and noon. Uh, going through my food plots Uh, and he was I could tell he was a really mature deer Um, I mean for my farm you know a a four and a half year old deer is a mature deer because on the east side of my farm is heavy state land Uh, and then on the northeast side of my farm uh, there's a couple guys really hunt that property really hard so for me to you know for me to let a deer get five or six years old is really tough because they just get hit hard as soon as they leave my property. Um, but anyway, I had him on trail camera and last year opening day, I didn't see him at all during bow season, but I, I was only able to hunt three or four days opening day of firearm season. I, I saw him in, uh, in the same stand I killed him out of this year. Uh, but he was at about 185 yards and I was hunting with a gun that I didn't feel comfortable at that with i watched him for 10 or 15 minutes well that evening i went back to that same stand and i saw him again and he was at the same spot he but he was only out for about 30 seconds and i didn't have a shot i did not see that deer again until the opening day of muzzleloader season which would have been sometime around december 10th and he stepped into my food plots broadside at 30 yards at five o'clock in the evening and i thought buddy you are dead and I pulled the trigger <laughs> on that muzzle muzzleloader and that deer just stood there, looked around and turned around, walked across the pond dam and went right back up into the woods. And so I got down on my stand after a half hour or so and went and looked right where he was at. Not a not a hair, not a, hair, not a drop of blood, nothing. I mean, that, I, that deer didn't act like he'd been shot. And I got back up in my tree stand and looked in front of me and about 10 yards in front of me was about a four inch elm tree. And I shot one of the limbs right out of it and I didn't see it through my scope. And it was, it was actually laying right. It was laying in the crown of the tree right in front of me at 10 yards. So there I knew why I missed him. And I I did not have that deer on my trail cameras all fall of this year. I I hadn't, I had not seen that deer since I missed him that day and opening day, I'm hunting behind the house and right about nine or 10, uh, I I start getting several young bucks, year and a half to two and a half. uh, I think there was five bucks in all, chasing two does all through the bedding areas and prairie grasses and, and just all around me. And this went on for an hour, hour and a half. Well, right about noon, a doe went through the soybeans in front of me into the little woods right next to me and into the prairie grasses and three little bucks followed her. And I was watching them and right behind the third buck, that big buck that I had not seen for almost 12 months, stepped out of the woods. And he was about, he was about 60 yards. And so, uh, that I, I was able to put a good shot on him and, uh, and we were really blessed. And it was, uh, it it was pretty unique hunt because I, he wasn't in a position at first for me to shoot him and well, he and I had a 45 minute standoff. I'm standing with, uh, with my uh, rifle on him, and he was still not in a position I felt comfortable that I was going to take the shot. And he stood there and stared at me, and I stood there and stared at him. And we did that for 45 minutes, and he stepped back, <laughs> then he stepped back into the woods, and then five minutes later, stepped right back out and in the exact same position. And he just stood there and, and watched me. He knew there was something there, but he couldn't figure it out. And the wind was right, so I knew he couldn't win me. Uh, the wind was out of the east that day. That's why I hunt that stand, and uh, and so it 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 made for a it made for a really really uh, interesting and exciting day.
2: Oh yeah, what was going through your head over the course of that 45 minutes? Like, what was the Rob Hawbury self-talk to make it through that without losing your mind? The Rob
1: hawbury self-talk on that was move, do something, take a step. <laughs> and, and you know, he, he didn't he because he was a big mature buck. He didn't do that. Bob your head, stomp your foot, bob your head, stomp your foot that you see a lot of young bucks and does do. He just stood there and was literally locked on me. And every now and then he would just turn his head and watch the, the does and the little bucks around him. But the fascinating thing about that hunt that I found was those, the, those little bucks were chasing those does in circles around him and he still never moved. He was still just staring and fixated on me. And, uh, it, 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 I, I found it. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of deer hunting, especially, you know, when you, when you go out and you spend time in the field, you get to see how deer react to certain scenarios. Um, and, and you just, you can just learn a lot. Um, you know, people have always said, well, a big buck will stand in the brush and just watch things for 45 minutes or an hour. <laughs> I believe that. Absolutely. Because that that deer just, I mean, he wasn't in a hurry to move. And he he wasn't leaving the prairie grasses because those young bucks chased those two does uh, an eighth of a mile uh, out into the bean field and into a little patch of corn and then back around me. Uh, I mean, they, they had a quarter of a mile loop. They were running around it, and that that buck wasn't leaving that woods, and he, he wasn't about to step out of those prairie grasses.
2: Wow, yeah, they're they're almost a different species once they get to four or five years old, aren't they?
1: Oh, a, I mean, just absolutely. And I, I checked my my trail cameras uh, again. Uh, matter of fact, I pulled the Sid cards last weekend because I hadn't pulled the Sid cards since the first week of November, and I only had that buck on my trail car trail cams one day. Uh, and I got, and I had five pictures of him in one spot. So he wasn't, he wasn't venturing all across the farm. Uh, I felt that he was probably staying in that little woods right behind my house. And and that's my, believe it or not, that's my sanctuary. It's a three and a half acre woods right behind my house. And I never, ever, ever go in it unless once a year I look for sheds. And here within a month or so, I'm going to go in and do a, a little bit of habitat improvement. But other than that, I never go in that woods. And every year, there will be a really nice mature buck make that his little bedroom.
2: So and maybe that, what you just described, is going to be the answer to my next question. But what I'm wondering is, How do you manage to have a good mature buck like that on uh, what I think it's a a relatively small property that you have, right? Am I right on that? Total of 80 acres. Okay. Yeah. So that's kind of what I was assuming. And so with state land on one side and another heavily pressured property on the other, you know, I think a lot of people might assume in that scenario, there's no way you're going to have a four or five-year-old buck because, you know, that 80 acres is not the entire range of a big deer like that he's going to get he's going to get killed on one of those neighbors so what do you have to do from a hunting perspective to to not pressure deer off of that and, and have them on the neighbors getting shot or i guess is it a habitat thing that you do that leads to these bucks being able to make it despite the neighborhood is it a conservative hunting approach or is it an aggressive hunting approach or what do you think it is that allows you to still have good deer like this despite the fact that there's public land 100, 200 yards away or whatever it is. And, and they're right there.
1: I I think it's the combination of both the habitat and, and your, how you hunt the property. Because in the past, um, I would have trail cam pictures of really nice, mature deer determined to, to kill that deer before firearm season came in. So I had the month of October to hunt it, um, because the rut isn't in full swing yet in October and you know does aren't really going into estrus and there's not a lot of chasing going around Um, i think the mistakes i made in the past was i was so determined to kill that deer in bow season that i think i put too much pressure on the farm even though i'm very meticulous on how i hunt the farm with the wind there there i mean you know we've got 80 acres and i think i've got 13 or 15 stands and when I tell people that, they think I'm nuts. Right. But say, well, well, you know, I, I have got a, a tree stand for any wind direction to be able to hunt at whether it's a morning or, a, or an evening stand. Uh, you know, I, and, and this is the beauty about owning your property is, you know, if, if you just take time and enjoy it, over time, you will learn how the deer move and how they come in and out of the property, what they like, what they don't like. And you will also learn the best places to hunt and the places you don't want to hunt because you got busted too many times. Mm-hmm. And so, if the wind isn't right at a certain time of day, for example, if the only place I have to hunt is my back, the back 40 of our property is all timber. And if the only place I have to hunt is evening with an east wind, I don't get a hunt that day because on the back 40 of my property with an East wind, I'm out of luck. Uh, that's just all there is to it. Because if I try to hunt that with an East wind, it's going to interfere with where the does bed and where the bucks bed. And, and I'm just going to mess it up. Now on the, if I want to hunt a morning hunt and I have a West wind, I've, I've just got a, a fabulous stand on our back Ridge. Uh, I know where the, I know where they bed and I know how they travel through and you know, I've got a really good stand and, it. Uh, from, from that standpoint. So I think what's really helped me, especially the last, um, uh, three or four years is, and I don't want to take any what thing away from the guys who love to bow hunt, but I have just not pressured the farm at all during bow season. And, and I think my thoughts on this and my father and I were discussing this here uh, last week, um, I think what's, hap- what's helped with that is because the lack of pressure that I put on, yet the pressure that the neighbors have put on, has allowed the deer to feel comfortable on the farm. Uh, and then once those does start to go into estrus in the end of October, 1st of November, because they feel comfortable on the farm and because there's a few little bucks on the farm, I think, uh, you know, uh, at least in my case, a mature buck will come in and this isn't the first time it's happened The bet. You know, that was one of the best deer I've ever killed on the property. Second best deer I've killed on the property came out of the same little three and a half acre woods. Um, and so, you know, I, I think what's taken place is because of the lack of pressure that I put on it. You know, I'm not out there every morning, every evening, six days a week. I think that helps the deer uh, feel comfortable on the farm. And that allows me to hunt on days that, I know I can. If I need to, I can put in a full day sit. If the wind is right, I know I can hunt a specific stand. And the other thing I think I've done, Mark, that has really helped, and you know, I, and I've read a lot of articles on this, and and I'm I'm finding it to be very true is those approaches to your tree stand and and the exit routes out of your tree stand are absolutely huge. Uh, I. I, I mean, just moving a tree stand 15 yards, uh, you know, with a south wind uh, and being able to get out of that stand down into the creek and leave that stand and not have deer blow out of your food plots, that has really helped immensely. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I love late season hunting and we've got a little bit of snow on the ground this morning from last night's snow. I'll probably hunt this evening and there's, you know, I've got six acres of standing soybeans and there's a good chance there'll be 15 deer in my food plots this evening. And I may not kill one. I just like going out and and watching how they behave uh, and watching uh, how, you know, how they work through the food plots and then And then once they pass by me and you know I, i usually take my binoculars and look real close the best i can you know i might sit out there an hour after dark just so i don't spook deer when i leave and i think that has helped immensely as well now i want your listeners to understand every year i learn i'm learning something constantly and you know i'm not the guy like don higgins who's gone out and killed 200 inch deer i just haven't but you know i enjoy hunting my farm I enjoyed doing the habitat improvements on my farm and that's what has really brought the joy of hunting to me is seeing how the deer react to those habitat improvements and seeing how those habitat improvements have uh, have helped the, the herd quality on my property. And so uh, I've, I've learned a lot over the years and I've learned a lot by listening and watching uh, videos and and listening to podcasts like yours, and you know, and reading articles, and you know, and every every now and then, you know, you'll read an article and go, I've never thought about that, and you try it, and you think, Dagon, that really works.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that process of continuous learning is is probably the very best thing about this whole thing. Yep, uh, hunting and management and all that—you're never going to learn it. You're never going to know it all, so it's it's a constant process. Mm-hmm. New discoveries, new things to try. That's just a good time. Um, and that's and
1: that's, a, that's one thing I love about my the property that we have is, you know, when there's a new food plot blend comes out or a new seed variety, I'm not afraid to buy it and plant it, you know, maybe in a quarter of an acre uh, for a year or two just to see if the deer like it. Uh, and that's that's how I've kind of narrowed down what I plant on the farm because I, it's been a lot of trial and error. Um, and, uh, so I mean, after after you do that quite a bit, you, you have a tendency to realize the deer really don't uh, browse on what I planted that much or the next year maybe I'll plant something and, man, they hammered that. They really liked it, so maybe I'll try a little bit more. And, you know, as long as the nutritional quality is there, uh, I'm not afraid to try new things, uh, but that's the beauty of owning your own property. You know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to try one specific product or one specific seed blend and say, well, this is what I want to plant this year. I'm just going to leave it at that. Don't ever be afraid to try variety because you know, you you never do, you never know what the deer might be liking next year.
2: Yeah yeah trial and error is uh is usually a good approach to uh take things that next level you you mentioned that you're probably going to go hunting tonight or or sometime soon so uh what's what's your program for late season deer hunting what's what's your approach Uh, my approach is food uh
1: because i know you know like last week it was warm i mean we were in the mid 60s a couple days um i I really there's one particular stand on my property that's right next to the creek and i love hunting that stand it's i've had it there since my dad bought the farm back in 2000 and uh, that's my favorite evening stand but i can only hunt it with a south wind well i hunted it one evening last week and uh at 10 minutes until dark i mean shooting light was just about over the deer hadn't even started coming out yet. So I went ahead and climbed down and left because I didn't want to be there an hour and a half after dark and I didn't want to spook them. And so when it's warm like that in late season, they just don't move until almost dark because they don't have to, because they're not cold. uh, You know, and they're not gravitating to the food as quickly. Um, and so, uh, I didn't hunt a lot last week. This week it's, it's colder. I know they're going to move sooner. Uh, I have a lot of soybeans planted. So my goal for this evening will be to check the wind and decide which stand I like best based on the wind direction. Uh, and then I will basically hunt over food. Uh, and basically I, I'm meat hunting now. Uh, I usually try to kill one large doe on the farm. Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes I'll kill like last year, my, my wife, I hadn't killed a deer for a couple of years because I hadn't seen one that I wanted to kill. And last year, my wife's like, we need meat, kill your deer and then chase your buck. <laughs> so, yep. so, so last, last, last year I, I, I shot a big doe on the first day of, uh, firearm season cause I wasn't able to bow hunt that much. And I sent her a picture and I said, does that work for you? <laughs> and she said, very good. And so, uh, but yep. anyway, uh, so, but, uh, you know, uh, and, and we're the family that, uh, my, we rarely ever buy beef unless we're going to grill a steak on the grill. I mean, we, we eat everything that I kill mm-hmm. and my wife's a good cook. And, uh, so we really enjoy that. And even my daughter, you know, she's a, she's a fifth year senior in college and, and she's, she even informed me last year, dad, we're getting low on meat. <laughs> so, so that's kind of nice, but Get to lady, work. Yeah, my late season focus is I I like hunting over food, uh, and so because I have a lot of soybeans, um, you know they have a tendency to to be right there, no, uh, you know depending on the wind direction and so forth. So, but I have noticed on the farm as well that if if for some reason there's pressure on a neighbor, uh, and they have a tendency to bed uh, close to the neighbors, but on our property that can dictate how they move into the food plots that evening by what pressure they had during the day.
2: So that by that, do you mean if on the neighboring property, they were in their hunting earlier that day that the deer coming into your place won't move until after dark or something like that? Or or what do you mean? It's
1: not only that, but uh, you know, if, and this happens when you own land next to state land, if if somebody's come in and avoided or, or trespassed on you and has pushed the deer out of the bedding area, you know, while I was at work and they came in and do that. Uh, then, uh, you know, that might change the deer patterns that day because, you know, they were ran off the farm or away from the farm or in a different spot than where they knew normally bed. And so, as they're moving into the food that evening, it might take them an extra fifteen or twenty minutes to get there, or they may not get there till after dark because they've been bedding a half a mile away.
2: Yeah. Do you view that, you know, having public land next to you as as a detriment or as an asset in certain ways? I, I've I've talked to some folks that have similar situations like this. Excuse me, like this, and. The initial thought is typically like, oh, man, there's guys in there all the time uh, pushing stuff around, shooting things. It's a tough thing to deal with. But on the flip side, you might be able to look at and say, okay, there's hundreds of acres of public land or whatever that if it was not public land, it might hold a bunch of deer that would stay there, and I wouldn't see them. But instead – there's deer there in the spring and summer, and then once hunting season starts, all those other people go in there and they push everything to, to your place. Do you, do you get any of that kind of effect, and all of a sudden, like, your property's better because everything's pushed off by the pressure on the neighbors?
1: I think most definitely. Um, I know since that – that was 40 acres on our east side – And we had told one of the owners that if they ever decide to sell it, we want first chance to buy it. Um, And then the the Indiana division of forestry came in and bought it and we didn't even know it. Um, So we were really disappointed in that. Uh, But I think since the state has owned it, that's exactly what's happened. I, I, since people, you know, with the, with, the, with the GIS information you have on your cell phones, you know, most people don't go buy a plat book anymore. They can pull up their cell phone and know who owns the property. Mm-hmm. And so most people now know that that piece next to us is public land. Uh, it does get hunted more than it used to uh, since there have been more people hunting it. I think that has pressured that area a little bit more. And, and I do think that is one of the reasons, uh, some of these more mature bucks have gravitated into our property because there's no, there's very little pressure. Um, but I will admit from, I like to be able to control what goes on on the farm. Um, and I can't control that 40 acres and that's, uh, I, I don't, I don't like having public land right next to me because Like I'd mentioned before with trespassing people can really mess it up Um, But on the other hand, I I think that has uh, That has been a little bit of a benefit in allowing uh, More mature bucks to find a little bit better sanctuary on our property Um, I know people from from a real estate standpoint. I know people who have who are looking for property and they love the fact that a, a parcel I might have for sale or a parcel they're looking at is next to public land because that gives them more acreage to hunt. And, right. and I understand that or gives them more acreage to hike or whatever. Um, and from, se- from a selling standpoint, you know, when you sell a farm, if it has, if it's adjacent to public land, you know, I've not had anybody not like that. Um, I'm just, I think what, hurts me more than anything is the county road uh there's a pub there's an access site right there on this 40 acres that that joins us uh, if it was a little bit more isolated or landlocked it wouldn't bother me a bit but it's not and so uh so yeah there, there's good points and bad points i think
2: yeah yeah and it's one of those things that uh, man having public access for those hunters that you know are going to use that. It's such a great privilege and it's great that people can get out there and enjoy it. Uh it's just a shame when people uh abuse that privilege and then trespass on somebody else's land. So um man, I hate to see a good thing be you know turn into a bad thing when people abuse that and uh and I hope I hope uh that happens less and less because you know uh we need a place for people to go hunt, but you know, public access is going to be taken away if people don't use it the right way. So it's a shame when you see those examples, and I've certainly seen it. Um, sure. uh, now back to the late season thing. You talked about the fact that your late season strategy all revolves around food, and you talk to a lot of different people when it comes to managing land or adding food to a property, and and some folks many folks take the approach of the fact that they want, you know, year round food or season long food. Um, but there are certain parts of the season when food is disproportionately important, at least from a hunting perspective. And late season seems to be one of those times when, you know, a lot of neighboring places might be lacking. While in October, everything's covered in food, there's great stuff all over the place. There's great habitat all over the place. You know, it's a, it's a, diminishing set of resources that we have once you get into December or January. So my question is, do you make improvements to your property or do you think about food specifically with the late season in mind ever? Because you know that, man, that's when my food plots will really be special. In In October, they're okay. They're, it's great to have, but they're that not that unique compared to everything around me. But once we get to December, I could have the only show in town, um, is that in your mind at all, or should be, people be thinking about that?
1: Uh, it is, uh, but I do, and I stress this to like my clients. When I meet a client, and, You know, and a lot of my, my Habitat clients, they want me to write a plan, and they want to implement it, which I think that's great. I think it's great when people can do their own management work and see the rewards of their hard work. And, and I just – they, they kind of use me as a coach, and that's great. <clears throat> but on my farm – I focus year on year round nutrition. I want to make sure that the that let's start in January. I want to make sure that I have a good high carbohydrate high protein food source January, February, March. Uh, because I want my deer to be healthy going into that lag time because that time period when your soybeans are picked off and the and the deer have been in the corn for the last two and a half months and there's just not much there and the ground's just starting to thaw out and, and but you know, the native forage is, is is not budding yet and the deer are really just eating browse. I want to make sure I have plenty of nutrition at that time. And so that's when I think your the fall food plots that you plant, such as wheat, oats, turnips, winter peas, things like that, they're breaking dormancy. And you know, in in April and May, before your clover starts to grow again and before anybody's planted any soybeans, you have got something that's really nutritious for the deer. And then you go into, um, then you go into the growing season where you plant your annual crops, and. I I plant a, a forage soybean, and that is what I encourage my clients to plant. And the reason I like a forage soybean is because it's not an ag bean. A forage soybean is a soybean that deer can browse, and that soybean continues to grow and will continue to put on new growth. So if if you picture a soybean that grows out of the ground and once it's, you know, 10 or 12 inches tall, it's got two or three or four stems on it, and then the leaves start coming on those stems. Well, the deer comes in and browses those. Everywhere there's a crotch in that stem, it's going to sprout, you know, a new leaf. Uh, And so the forage soybeans can handle a lot of browse pressure. So... The, the, the soybeans I plant in, in May are the forage soybeans, but the beauty of those is they're very late maturing. So going into October, I've still got green soybeans. Last year, I had six acres of green soybeans the first week of November. Every soybean plant within five miles of me was nothing but a stem with a bean pod. And keep in mind, it's still 65 degrees so the deer aren't necessarily gravitating to you know something that's high in carbohydrates they still like that green forage they still like the clover you know they like the the if you've got winter wheat out they like the winter wheat they like the oats anything that's green when it's not real cold outside they're going to move to mm-hmm. and that's the beauty of the forage soybean and the the nice thing is 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 if you have a good growing season they're still going to put on a lot of pods so i've got green forage on my farm from the time i put my fall plots in until my I plant my fall plots the next year so so basically i've got wheat oats peas and turnips and and, and brassicas on my farm going into the fall into the winter they're going to take off in late winter early spring and really grow nice and thick as it gets warm the beauty of those fall plots uh, or I call them winter annuals. Is you know you get you get a week in December when it's 65 degrees, they're going to grow. You know unless the ground's just frozen solid. I mean they're going to grow um, because and then when it gets cold, you know they're going to go dormant again. And it's just a really nice winter forage. When I missed that big buck last year during muzzleloader season, he had a mouthful of winter oats. Uh, he I mean he would you could hear him pulling them out of the ground. Um, and it, it, that was just literally fun to watch and, and and until I saw him turn and go back, (laughs) but anyway, so, so I, I really focus on nutrition. Um, and, but I also want, uh, something that's going to carry the deer when it gets really cold, like with the snow on right now. Uh, you know, I've got standing soybeans. The, the deer are going to be feeding on soybeans this evening. I'm, I'm just convinced of that. Uh, so that's what's nice. Uh, they're talking by next week we're going to be back up in the mid 50s. So they're probably going to be back in my clover and on the winter oats and winter peas. Now on those cool nights they're still going to eat soybeans, but you know they're opportunistic, and so they're going to hit a variety of forage types. And I just want to make sure I have as much variety out there as I can and enough nutrition to carry them into spring, uh, because you know there's there's nothing better than knowing when your does are pregnant, that they're healthy. And as a doe is healthy, when when it gives birth to its fawns, she's going to lactate really well and the fawns are going to be healthy. Uh, As a buck comes out of rut, you know, you got to make sure that on your farm, he's got plenty of nutrition. So his body is strong and healthy. So when that antler growth begins, his body isn't trying to grow antlers and replenish that body mass that he had before the rut. If you can help maintain that body mass, you know, and don't get me wrong, I know they wear themselves out and they run themselves down, but if you have the nutrition on your property to help maintain that deer's body weight, when he's going back into uh, the late winter spring antler growth and he's got plenty of nutrition, uh, you know, he he's his body's able to really put an an extra percentage in those antler growth rather than just on the body weight.
2: Yeah. Let's let's keep going down this road um because while people certainly are still trying to get some hunting in over the next month or so um there's also a lot of people whose seasons are wrapping up and the new year is just a matter of days away and at least for me this is that time of reflection and looking back on the year and then planning for the new year. So from a habitat and property management perspective, how do you go about your doing this yourself or recommend other people kind of auditing what they have as they start planning out their plans for the new year? Um, what's that look like for you as, you as you analyze things from the past and think through where we're going, you know, in the coming six to 12 months?
1: So I I think the best time to do it, uh, while you're, it's when you're sitting out there in a tree stand and you're observing your habitat and you're observing what the deer like and what the deer don't. Um, you can, you can visualize, uh, because you know, with me, I hunt several stand locations. So as I'm sitting in a tree stand, I'm looking around thinking, man, I have got to get Uh, More cover in this valley right here. So that's in my mind and maybe I'll pull my cell phone out and make a note Uh, my uh, The the Northeast Valley within our farm. I need to get in and do some hinge cutting in January and February Um, You know, so as I'm on the tree stand I'm thinking about different things that I, I want to do on the farm now I will not start doing anything on the farm until the last day of hunting season is over. If if I'm finished hunting for the year and I go out and I start uh, doing hinge cutting or or making larger areas for my food plots or whatever, there's a good chance I I could push the deer off the farm onto the neighbor's property uh, during a hunting season and they could end up killing deer that I wanted to kill next year. And so I'm not going to do anything on the farm until after January 6th here in Indiana. Uh, I'm, that's just that's me. That's just what I do. Um, if I go into the farm, other than approaching a tree stand right now, I'm always going in on an ATV, and even when I'm, I might be changing a tree stand, I do that with the ATV running. And I have found that, that as long as that – As long as there's a machine of some sort, it it doesn't seem to bother the deer that bad. Um, Now, I'm not driving it through the bedding areas or my sanctuaries or anything like that. But when I'm going around a farm to check trail cameras or like last Sunday, I moved a tree stand and and I left the ATV running while I moved the tree stand. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that I don't think that spooked the deer or pushed the deer off or anything like that. So, as I'm thinking about different habitat improvements, I'm thinking about those when I'm sitting on the on my tree stand, observing the habitat, thinking about what I need to do, and maybe making notes on on my cell phone, or if you got a little notepad with you, too. Um, and then I'm thinking about implementing those habitat improvements as starting as soon as I can, as soon as hunting season is over. Now, if I'm going to go out and start doing a lot of hinge cutting or something like that. Maybe I like to do it when it's cooler, so maybe I'll do it in the winter. Uh, But, um, you know, I'm not going to be out there consistently making habitat improvements between January and July, or or you're going to, there's just going to be, in my opinion, there's just going to be a little too much activity on the property.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition For all things auto, do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater.
2: What do you recommend to folks when it comes to trying to prioritize all these ideas because someone could do what you describe, described, sit up in their tree throughout the fall and they're thinking through, okay, man, I wish I had more food here and it'd be cool to have a food plot there and I need more cover here and maybe I could improve an access route over here and you know, yada, yada, yada. There's a thousand different things you could do. How do you recommend someone prioritize, whether that be on a property they've been working with for years or maybe they just bought a new farm or they just picked up a lease and they're saying, okay, where do I start?
1: So my suggestion is what is the number one limiting factor on your farm affecting your deer herd? Is it food? Is it cover? Or is it water? If you've got plenty of cover, but you're limited on food, then I would focus on food. If you've got plenty of food, like on my farm, I've got plenty of food because of of natural succession that takes place in a forest stand a lot of my bedding areas have grown into are starting to grow back into a uh, to a forest stand so my focus this year this winter will be uh, improving the bedding areas improving cover um and, and actually uh here as soon as deer season's over i'm actually getting ready to mark a timber harvest onto my farm uh, because we've got some areas that are mature. I've got some white oak I'd like to release for better acorn production. And so I'm gonna create bedding areas through the timber harvest and also help release some of the white oak, get better white oak acorn production. But if water is an issue on your farm, then you know you might wanna be thinking about uh, building a pond or creating some type of a, a, a small wildlife pond on the property for water. But But I would look at your property and ask yourself, what is the number one most limiting factor? Is it food? Is it cover? Or is it water? Because any wildlife species requires that those are the three main components of habitat, food, water and shelter. And you got to have all three of them. Uh, So if, if, if you've got plenty of cover, but all your deer are going on to the neighbors to eat the food, I'd be thinking about food. Um, you know, but if you've got plenty of food, um, but you're starting to lack cover, and you're finding that the deer are starting to bed on your neighbors, then I would be thinking to do thinking about habitat improvements to improve the cover.
2: Does any of that change if you have a really small property versus a really large one? Um, have you found that man when you've got those super small properties X is particularly important or no matter what it, you're always going to want to look and examine what that limiting factor is
1: if you've got a really <clears throat> really small property I mean you can always put out some type of food source to at least get a shot at a deer you know to so they would come out of a bedding cover or something and just stand there a minute and feed um, uh, but, uh, you know, if, if you're looking at a really small property, I, I think the key to that is going to be cover. And the reason I say that is because you have a, and it's just my opinion, but you have an area that, uh, a lot. say if you have a large farm around you and they've got all the habitat components you can want and there's a lot of guys hunting, those deer are going to be searching for an area that's small and isolated and uh, and you know if they've got just like that little three and a half acre woods right behind my house if they've got a little area like that that they can escape to they're never pressured and they've got cover and they like it there you know if you can improve the cover on that property and then and then hunt around that property in a way to you know because at some point the deer are going to leave there to go to a food source um and so i I think you know i i think that would be really important because you know if you've got a little 10 or 15 or 20 acre woods and you really don't have any place to, to put food, uh, you know. Even if you can't clear a little ridge top of some kind to put in a clover plot or something like that, you might be a little bit limited. So, I mean, the easiest thing you could do is to create cover and and, and allow those deer a sanctuary on that little
2: fifteen or twenty acres. <clears throat> so, so walk me through how you would do that. And I know you alluded to some of the stuff you're going to do on your own farm. What are your different tools for improving cover that, that you like to, to use or recommend your your clients use I know you do a lot with timber stand improvement I've seen you talk about native grasses uh, I'd love to hear you expand on some of those things okay
1: so if you're talk if you have an area that uh, is wooded say if you have 20 or 40 acres of timber you know naturally your cover is going to be creating a bedding area within that. 20 or 40 acres. Uh, So as a forester, I don't want to ruin the, the the quality of my forest stand uh, because my goals are twofold. My goals are growing timber for revenue at some point in time. But at the same time, 50% of my goals are improved uh, habitat. Excuse me. And so if my goals are twofold like that, I'm going to I'm going to select areas to go into. Say for example, if I've got a woods that it's just it just appears to be pretty mature, uh, it's ready for a timber sale or or, or it could have a, could stand a timber harvest. I'm going to go into that woods and I'm going to select those areas that, you know, I know are going to provide a lot of cover really quick. Maybe an east or a northeast uh, or north facing slope. And, and I like the t- the toes of those small ridges. And I'm going to go in there and I'm going to I'm going to mark every single tree I can. Basically, you're making a small regeneration opening. Depending on the size of the property, it could be a half acre in size. It could be six acres in size. Uh, and I'm going to take all the timber out of there. And then once that timber is removed, then I'm going to go in uh, with timber stand improvement and take out those trees that um, that we don't want to leave. Uh, that uh, the the timber sale didn't remove, so those we'll either cut those down to make as as large of an opening as we can, or we can hinge cut some of those trees based on your management goals. Now I caution people with the hinge cutting. I've been on properties where people have gone in and done a lot of hinge cutting, and and they didn't know their tree species, and they've gone through and hinge cut all their red oak and white oak, and they left a bunch of poplar and soft maple and beech. Um, it can be really discouraging when you see that, um, you know, so I would encourage your, the listeners to to get an idea of the tree species or meet with a forester or something. When you go out, if you're thinking about creating these bedding areas using hinge cutting and, and and hinge cut those tree species that you know are going to sprout well, like a soft maple or um, beech or um, sassafras, hinge cut those. They're going to sprout back really well. And uh, that way you're not ruining the, the residual value or the future value of your timber stand, but you're also creating habitat. And so in those forested stand, in those forest stand areas, you know, once we, once we have a timber harvest, if it needs it, then we'll go back and do timber stand improvement. Then we'll select those areas that we want to do the hinge cutting on. And I always select those areas, Mark, that, that I know the deer are already using. If I've got a spot on my farm and I know I've never seen does bed there. I've never seen bucks bed there. I don't know why they just don't like it, but I got another area on the other side of this Ridge where that seems like they always want to bed and they always want to be there. You know, if I've got an area like that, that's the area I want to improve. Cause if I'm, I'm, if I'm improving their home, they're going to want to stay there. And so I, I would encourage people to kind of, to, to kind of look at that as well. And so, so if you're, if, if you're looking at a forest stand, you can look at, a possible timber harvest and after the timber harvest do post harvest timber stand improvement and incorporate your hinge cutting after that. Uh, if you're looking at a forest stand that is a really young stand, um, I looked at a track of timber for a client a few months ago and once deer season is over, uh, they're going to do the work, but I'm going back into their property and I'm going to flag all the all the young white oak and red oak trees to make cuz they could to make sure that they don't cut them. And then they're going to they're go through this stand of timber because it's full of, of sycamore and soft maple and, and elm. And they're going to do some hinge cutting pockets uh, based on our map and our plan, uh, but they're not going to hinge cut those uh, future acorn producing trees. And so, uh, you know, that's that's a particular property where th- there's not enough mature timber to have a timber sale, but they can go out on a couple weekends in January and February and start doing th- some really good hinge cutting, and which I think will improve the, the cover habitat on their property immensely.
2: How big do you recommend those types of cover improvements be, whether it be a hinge cutting pocket <laughs> or, you know, some of these other TSI type projects when you're trying to improve bedding and wildlife cover? is there a size a cat shouldn't be any smaller than this or it should be at least this big or, or is it just do whatever you can
1: uh, I think it's uh, based on your objectives for the farm um, if, if you have an 80 or a hundred or 120 acres or anything larger than that you know there's nothing wrong with having a three to five to six or eight acre opening you know if you only own 20 acres that's that's a pretty good size opening but there's nothing wrong with it if your goal is, is cover and habitat. But what I like to do is I like to create a large opening and I call that my doe bedding areas. And then, then what I'll do is I'll create a couple smaller openings, like a satellite. I call it a satellite opening, maybe just a few yards away from that doe bedding opening I made. And that smaller opening is going to be tailored to my buck bedding. Um, And so uh, I, and it's just my choice to do that. Um, I really like um, to, I would like to go, I like to go into an area and and create an area that I know the does are going to bed in. Um, But I also want to create it in a fashion that I know um, that I can hunt close to it. For example, on my farm, we've got a long ridge that runs through the farm and, and on the, North side of that ridge is a, is a valley, um, and that's where I'm going to focus part of my timber sale in that valley, because I know the doe like to go in that valley, but there's also a little pocket at the east end of that ridge that's got a bunch of uh, small cedar and some small sassafras, uh, cedar and persimmon at the end of that ridge, and the doe bed either on that, on that north-facing slope or they bed on that west-facing slope where the cover is but that ridge right in the middle uh is where i come in from the east and i hunt that ridge because it's a it's it's a little bit more mature it's got a lot of white oak on it and the doe come in circle around that ridge and then go into their bedding areas when the wind is out of the west and it's just a home run hunting area uh, because the bucks just, the, you, when the wind's out of the west, they just come wending both of those bedding areas all the time. So I keep that ridge somewhat open. So that's a whole idea of a plan. You, you've got, you don't want to just go out and start cutting things down. You've got to have a plan that this is a bedding area and this is where I hunt. How am I going to approach it in the morning? How am I going to approach it in the evening with with certain type of wind directions? and you know that sometimes that just takes a, a little bit of time and a couple or a few years to learn that and so, so for example on my farm I'm going to improve both of those bedding areas but I'm I'm not going to do a lot on top of that ridge and so my improvement might be through a a timber harvest and then post-harvest timber stand improvement and then hinge cutting. In the little area where the cedar trees are, There's not we're not going to do a timber harvest in there. The, the timber is not mature enough, but I will go into where uh, some of that poplar and soft maple and beech are, and I will do quite a bit of hinge cutting in that area just to improve that spot.
2: Back to that uh, comment you made about how you'll make the larger openings for does and then you'll create these satellite openings. Um, nearby for bucks. Is there any rhyme or reason to the orientation of where the doe bedding area versus the buck bedding is? I know some people propose something like this where they'll, let's say you've got a food source. Let's say your property's a 40 acre square and let's say there's food on the south side, we'll say. They, I've heard, we'll look at making your doe bedding areas just north of that. So closest to the food would be your big opening for does. And then the buck bedding might naturally be behind that. So further north of that. Is that how you orient your satellite bedding from the main bedding? Is it behind it or, or does that not matter? What's your thought process there?
1: Yeah, I I like that approach, uh, but I also base mine on topography. Uh, so, let me walk you through a little scenario on my farm so right in the middle of uh, our our farm is, is is like a it's shaped like a dog's leg it's almost l-shaped but right in the middle of the l at our farm actually gets narrow right there that's the narrowest portion and so real close to that narrow portion is is where the creek valley goes through it's kind of low it's almost like a bowl it's very very difficult to hunt. Um, but that's where my food sources are. Okay, so you go from, from that little bowl where my food plots are, and then you start going east. East, Just adjacent to the food plots is a half acre pond. And then adjacent east of the half acre pond are my dull bedding areas. And then you go just a little bit east of that, and you can get satellite spots where the bucks bed. And then just east of that, you get into a little more mature timber on our farm where we have a lot of white oak and black oak. And so I can approach the farm to hunt with a west wind if I approach it from the east. I never approach the farm and walk through that area going to my tree stand. And so to answer your question, yes, I I would put those satellite, those buck satellite areas a little bit farther out, but I'm also not gonna put those satellite areas too close to the neighbor's property or too close to state land. And when I said that I base it on topography and this is just my experience as a forester, not a habitat manager or anything. My experience 30 years in the woods as a forester, I have found piles of, not at the same time, but I've got piles of deer sheds in my pole barn where if if you walk out a ridge and then drop off that ridge and get halfway down that ridge on that toe, it seems like there's always a little bench right there. And that bench might be 10 feet in diameter. It might be four feet in diameter, but it's a little flat spot. You go into those areas this time of year or, or in January or February, they're wore flat. And that is where I always find sheds. And I call those buck benches. And so, when, I, when I'm looking at a plan for a client, if I'm going to uh, implement an opening for a doe bedding area in this area, I'm going to look topographically at those little toes where I know bucks have a tendency to, to bed. And they like those areas because if somebody comes in from the top of the ridge, they have a quick escape group right down to the creek valley. Cause they're halfway down already. If somebody comes in from the Creek Valley, they got a quick escape route right to the back, to the top of the Ridge. Um, so I'm going to try to improve those areas on the toes of those benches for the bucks, because I know they're already bedding there and then, and then create a larger bedding area somewhere adjacent to that for the does. But I don't want any of those bedding areas to be too close to the neighbors because, you know, Once the neighbors find out that you have a lot of good habitat, you'll start seeing a lot of tree stands along your property line.
2: Yeah. So how do you typically orient uh, improvements in relation to that? Do you try to keep most improvements towards the center of a property? Um, There's a lot of different opinions on how you should create improvements to try to keep deer using parts of yours while... You know, you could look at some people will say try to draw deer from other people to yours. Some people will say put your best stuff in the center, so it keeps stuff in the middle. Uh, is that overthinking things? Um, do you have any thoughts on just orientation in regards to property lines? Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: I've got my own opinion on that. I don't ever put food right next to my neighbors. That's for sure. You know, I'm not going to put a big clover plot and a big patch of eagle soybeans in October that are green right next to my neighbor's property, so my so they can kill my deer. Um, and, you know, sometimes if that's all you got, that's all you got. Um, but I I like to try to put as much cover as I can toward the middle of the property. If, if your property allows you to do that based on its topography or orientation, you know, because, I mean, if you've got the cover and you've got the bedding um, and you've got that sanctuary in the middle of your property, you know, you can always approach that property from different directions to hunt it. Um so yeah I like it I like it toward the middle. I mean it doesn't have to you don't have to draw a circle and then put an X through the circle and put a dot in the middle of that X and say I have to have my cover here. You know it's based on your the aerial photo and it's based on the topography of the of the property as well. Um you know you may have a small neck of the bedding area based on the topography that's going to be closer to the neighbor's property line. It's closer than you want it to be but based on uh, based on the soils and based on the aspect or the direction that the ridge might be facing or something that might be the best place for it uh, at that time so um, you know you, you have to you have to look at it as a whole that way but I do like to have as much cover as I can towards the center of my property
2: yeah now what about the flip side of this? Um, where we we've just talked about you know improving cover where there already is timber where there already is some cover, but what about a situation where you've got wide open fields and you want to create cover? Um, this this is exactly what I was dealing with on the back forty property where you came out and helped us you know, select some trees that we could start planting throughout that. Um, I want to dive into a bunch of things related to that, but I guess at a high level, if you had what we had which was a farm with about half the acreage in these old farm fields. And they were covered previously and mostly in mare's tail, So an invasive weed that was providing very little food or cover. Then um, we had to start trying to transform those old fields into something that would work for us. What would your, what would your take be on how to do that? Um, I tried some things and, and some of it worked, but I'm curious you know if that was your place and you had five years or whatever to start trying to transform that, what, would, what avenue would you have taken?
1: So when you're talking to ag fields and cover, you know uh, because when we, when we talk about cover, we want for our deer in the wintertime, we'd like to have good thermal cover. Uh, so you know if, if you drop to the ground on your knees and, and picture a deer laying down, um, are they going to be out of the wind? Uh, and are they going to be protected from the wind? Um, that's why some sometimes it's in inside the woods. That's why timber harvesting can be good because, you know, they'll bed in those old treetops right up against the, an old piece of log that was left out in the woods, you know, and the wind is off their back. Uh, but when you get into an area where, you know, you don't have a lot of timber cover and you are you have a, a heavy field component, then you need to be looking at native grasses if, if what you're looking for is cover. Now, you can always plant, a mix of grasses and pollinators, um, and if, here's the other caveat to this, and, and I've done this for a client up in uh, north central Indiana, and it worked out really well, he planted, uh, they planted several acres of native grasses. The deer were using it, but he couldn't get the deer to come farther onto his farm because they loved the native grasses. So what we did is we actually planted a travel corridor of mixed evergreens. So we planted a mix of white pine and northern white cedar between the native grasses and between his farm where we did the timber sale and the hinge cutting. And you cannot believe how that turned out to be a a highway for deer. They would bed in those prairie grasses, but they would use that travel because other than that, they didn't have any way to get from the prairie grasses a quarter of a mile back to his farm um, for some wooded cover and the food. And so we we planted that mix of evergreens as a travel corridor between the native grasses and where the food and the and the wooded cover or the the forested cover was, and it turned out just outstanding. So. I think a good mix of, of native grass cover uh, uh, for a bedding area, as well as uh, some type of uh, tree planting, especially with evergreens to use as a travel corridor, uh, you know is really good. You can also mix some shrubs in there because you know shrubs will grow anywhere from three to four feet high to fifteen feet high, but they're really bushy and they provide a lot of cover. The drawback with some of the evergreens, like pine, or the drawback if you just did a general tree planting, is at some point in time, the crown is going to be higher than the ground, and so you've lost that thermal cover, and that's why the prairie grasses are so good, and that's why the shrubs are good, because you still have that cover from five feet up in the air down to the ground that's protecting those deer from the wind.
2: Yeah. You you mentioned those travel corridors that you planted um, in pines for that one client. If if I were trying to create something like that, where I wanted to direct deer travel across some kind of opening, and and we we're going to use some type of evergreen component. What's the, the size? What was the orientation? as far as planting those trees? Was it two rows of pines? Was it, you know, 50 yards wide or 10 yards wide? Or how did you actually make it so that it was big enough for deer to feel comfortable, but still funnel them in that way? And and how long did it take for those trees to get big enough to, to provide that cover?
1: So we actually used uh, just bare root seedlings and used my tree setter. Uh, but I mean, because, you know, we were going 1300 feet. So I mean, if you were going to use container trees, you'd have been shelling out a lot of money, uh, because that would have been a lot of trees. So what we did is, and you have to base it on what, uh, he he was allowed uh, 30 or 50 feet, uh, because he didn't, he himself didn't own that portion that we planted it on, it was on the family farm, and they said, okay, we'll let you put a travel corridor in there of 35 feet or something like that, because they wanted to continue farming the rest of the field. Gotcha. Basically, basically we took 30 or 40 feet of their end rows and so what we did is we planted a mix of white pine and northern white cedar and they were bare root seedlings uh, and uh, we planted those 10 feet apart between trees and then we did eight feet between rows and then the next row we staggered so basically if you have one row of trees where the trees are 10 feet apart the next row of trees eight or 10 feet over, you're gonna plant those trees in those gaps. So you, so basically the trees are staggered. And we, and we did that for four rows. So you've got one row of trees, you're set, offsetting an eight or 10 feet, you're planting another row of trees, but you're not lining those trees up, you're planting them in those gaps. And, and then then you then the third row, you're planting the same as the first row or maybe just offset just a little bit. Um, And they were bare root seedlings. But to be quite honest with you, because because they hadn't farmed it and because the trees were there and because weeds were starting to grow between the tree rows, deer started using it the first year because, you know, you're going to get weeds in between those tree rows. Mm-hmm. And so you've you, you've still got a little bit of native natural cover there because maybe you got some ragweed or some mare's tail coming in between the tree rows that are three and four feet tall. But within, you know, within five years, these trees were four to five feet tall. And I mean, they, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the rubs on some of those trees were quite phenomenal. I mean, it was even even my client was was surprised. He, he just couldn't believe how well that worked. And so, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it can be, it can be done. And there again, you know, if, if you don't want to plant all evergreen, you can always plant shrubs, but if you just keep in mind, if you plant like a native hardwood, like a white oak, black oak, or red oak, at some point in time, the limbs are going to be six or eight feet off the ground and you're, you're going to lose that cover. Um, So, you know, I would plant something that you have cover all the way to the ground um, because that helps the deer feel
2: safe. Yeah. So when we met up this summer, you had walked me through a handful of different things to be thinking about when trying to plant these evergreens, um, just to make sure that they took well. And you mentioned some of it as far as, you know, your spacing between trees, but for those that want to plant trees like this to improve cover in certain places, uh, can you walk us through some basics of, of the right way to do it, the right time to do it, um, any other specifics as far as getting these things in the ground so that they will so they'll take and last and perform the function we want them to
1: so you want to make sure that you the trees you plant are healthy so you want to make sure you get them from a good source and in indiana we are really blessed the the indiana division of forestry we have a we have a tree nursery it's actually 5 miles from my house And I actually went to Purdue with the guys who actually run the nursery now, but Bob and Rob absolutely do an outstanding job of of growing the seedlings that the state sells. And so I know when I buy the seedlings from Bologna Nursery uh, there in southern Indiana, they're going to be good and they're going to be healthy. And so they actually pull those trees out of the beds this time of year, right up to the point where the ground freezes because the trees are dormant. And then then they they put them in mulch and wrap them in bundles of 100 and they put some water in the mulch and then they keep them in coolers. Uh, And that keeps the trees dormant. And you want to plant the trees in the spring as early as you can when the ground's not frozen. So we, depending on the soil temperatures and depending on uh, the conditions of the ground, uh, we'll start planting trees anywhere from, you know, middle of March and we'll continue planting all the way up until... Uh, you know, middle of May, first of June. You know, you get into a, an area that's river bottoms that goes underwater a lot. Those are going to be a little bit later plantings because I, I would rather plant a tree in a flood zone a little bit later than I would too early because it's really hard on the trees when they go underwater. Uh, so if you, you know, if the listeners out there have areas that are in flood plains, you know, don't I wouldn't hesitate to plant those trees a little bit later. Um, rather than uh, rather than too early, because when they go underwater like that, it can it can be a little bit hard on them, because you don't want your trees standing in water. And there's are some areas that you know they just flood, and that's going to happen. Uh, the second thing is you want to really make sure you select the trees that you're going to plant based on your soil types. Uh, you know, if, if if you're planting on a in a drier area and you want to plant hardwoods, you don't want to plant a bottomland bottom hardwood like a swamp white oak or a swamp chestnut oak. You're going to want to plant a regular white oak or a regular red oak because they, they, you know, because they're used to those soil types, those drier soil types. But there again, if you're planting in wet areas that flood, you want to make sure that the tree species you're planting can handle being in water for a certain amount of time. So in those flood zones, you know you're going to plant something like bald cypress or or a swamp white oak or swamp chestnut oak or shumard oak, uh, one of those uh, native a native species to your state that can grow well in those in those soil conditions. Um, but uh, and then uh, you know once once you pick the trees up, if you can get them in the ground as soon as you can. Um, that's always good uh, because you know when we open a bundle of trees the, the roots are cold from being in the uh from being in the coolers and so it's going to take a little time for that seedling for those roots to warm up once it goes into the ground and that's okay because that's just that's just a natural time frame for the tree to come out of dormancy um so yeah and i don't suggest we don't plant trees in the fall Uh, at all, Um, because the success of fall plantings is is not nearly as good as spring plantings because you don't have the rain. You'd like to get some moisture on those trees before that ground freezes, and if if you do a fall planting and it's dry and you haven't had much rainfall, and then we get a really early cold winter, you could end up having some root damage due to uh, frost heave or frost or freezing or something of that nature because the trees haven't had time to expand that new root system to really get established. So, the springtime is usually the best time to plant them. Now, if it's a small planting and you can get a 200 gallon tank and go out and water them, you know, there's nothing wrong with planting them late into spring, into early summer. You just have to make sure that. You know, you can get water to them. I mean, my wife and I planted some around the house uh, this past summer, and it, it, they were a late planting. But, you know, I've got a couple 200-gallon tanks, and, and we have a water source there in town where the farmers can go and get water at the county water uh, treatment facility. And, you know, I would just go in a couple evenings when it got hot, and we got the trees watered, and, and they were going to turn out fine. So, but springtime is usually the best time to plant.
2: Do you have any preferred species when you're trying? I know you mentioned evergreen, and you mentioned a couple that you used on that clients. Um, but as far as cover-producing trees, so mostly it's evergreens, um, are there any that do particularly well uh, as far as the amount of you know actual cover they provide, or their resistance to deer wanting to browse on them, or anything like that?
1: Cover wise, you know, if you're wanting trees or shrubs for for really good thermal cover, then you know you want to you want to really look at something that's going to have that's going to provide uh, branching all the way to the ground, and that's why you know some of the shrubs are really good. Something like hazelnuts really good because it it's just it has a tendency to grow into the, just a thick shrub, and plus they they produce mast uh, fruit. So, you know, that's a really good one. Um, And then, uh, you know, I like, I like white pine, but you you have to be careful with white pine because everybody wants to prune the branches so they can mow around the base of them. And then you look at them five years later and and the branches are seven feet off the ground. Uh, So, I mean, the key to that is, you know, you want to keep the branches as low to the ground as possible. Um, Uh, Norway spruce is a good one that uh, I have planted a lot of. Um, That's a really good evergreen that the limbs grow right down to the ground. And again, you don't want to prune those limbs next to the ground. Um, And honestly, I've I've been planting some uh, green giant arborvitae. Um, You know, they're not necessarily, it's more of a landscape tree but boy it sure provides really quick wind cover and you know that that it's it's a it's very cone shaped very conical shaped uh and they'll grow 15 feet wide and 20 feet tall um and they grow very fast if you plant them on the right side they'll grow three to five feet per year the ones i've planted around our house when we built in 2018 are already seven feet tall Um, so i mean they'll grow very fast i don't recommend you plant the, the whole travel corridor or the whole cover area to those. I, I always like like to see a mix and and the reason you want to mix your tree species up is, say for example, if you plant all white pine or you plant all white oak and you get a disease in that planting, that's going to wipe out the whole planting and then you're going to have nothing. And so you don't want just a monoculture of trees, you want a good variety. So, you know, you might plant a mix of northern white cedar, white pine and and uh, uh, green giant arborvitae and then throw in some uh, some hazelnut or some crab apple with those, you know. So, you, you, A, you've got really good foraging opportunities for a variety of wildlife species, plus you're providing uh, a corridor plus with some with some good thermal cover.
2: You, you you described some of the things that are exactly what we tried to do um, on our property, and, and and mostly because of your recommendations as far as providing that diversity in species. And, and we ended up doing these clusters of, of four or five trees, and some were those arborvitae, some were white pines, some were uh, a spruce. And and I think one of the other things is, is that you're going to get different types of use by wildlife with them too. And some you know deer will rub on, some deer won't. So in our cases, I've already seen a couple that got rubbed up um, and I'm glad we didn't plant all of our trees in that species because we might've been in trouble. Um, but what about in relation to that? What about protecting some of these things? Should someone be caging these trees early on uh, to avoid that issue of either browse pressure or deer rubbing them up and killing them? Anything like that? Yeah,
1: you know, depending on how long your travel corridor is or, you know, if you're creating a, a bedding area, uh, you know, and it depends on how many trees you have. It might be a situation where um, for the first two or three years, you may want to just uh, take that uh, like either electric tape with a, a solar power source and and just almost fence the whole area off to try to keep deer out of it to keep them from browsing the trees and to keep them from rubbing them in the fall. Or if, you know, if you've got a small enough area, you can always uh, fence the cage, the trees. Uh, so, for example, I've planted a lot of uh, orchard plantings for clients. And with when you're planting orchards, the deer love to browse them and the bucks love to rub them because they're aromatic and it's soft wood and it's just a great opportunity to destroy a tree when a buck is in rut. And so we, I, I actually use uh, like a, a mesh wire or fencing, so to speak, and and, and wrap that tree. Basically, if you plant a, put a tree in the ground, um, then I'm going to build a, a small fence around that tree so the tree can continue to grow. But at the same time, um, I'm, I'm able to keep the deer off of it. So you know, I I want to do more than just just. Fence off the the uh, the stem of the tree. I'm fencing off, especially with with pine trees or with fruit trees. I'm fencing off if that tree if the diameter of the tree is say for example two feet. I'm fencing off a four foot area just to keep the deer off of it.
2: This uh, topic that you brought up of the orchard trees, mass yes. producing trees. I, I've seen some videos of you talking through different ideas around that, and that's something I've not done, but always thought I should. I've just been intimidated by, um, "Ah, you have to do these different types of pruning and there's certain times of the year and you got to do that right. And I just have never went through with it because I just haven't committed. Um, that's probably a mistake I realized because the best time to plant a tree was yesterday or 10 years ago. But, um, can you walk me through some of your do's and don'ts when it comes to planting, you know, apple trees or other soft mast, um, stuff like that, in addition to what you just described about the caging?
1: So with fruit trees, um, it, 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 you got to start with the site. The key to fruit trees is you want to make sure that the morning sun can get to those trees as soon as it comes up or as soon as possible. Because the hardest thing on a fruit tree is if that morning dew stays on those leaves and on those stems, Um uh, way into the day because that's how you start getting the the fungal diseases that are so prevalent and can kill fruit trees. And so you know if you're if you have a have a ridge top that's open and, and you got and, and the wind can get to it and the sun can get to it, that's great. If you're in a shaded valley and the sun doesn't get down there until noon or one o'clock, I would not even consider planting fruit trees in that shaded valley. Um, I think you would end up having disease issues. Now, that doesn't mean you can try it and you might have success with it. That's great. But if I'm going to provide that service for a client, that's not an area I'm going to select. So site is very important. So you can get wind to them <clears throat> to keep the leaves dry. And you can get sun to them as early as you can in the morning. And I like to use container trees with when I'm planting an orchard, just because you're gonna start getting fruit so much sooner. Um, so I'll buy container trees, and I mean, honestly, you know, if the tree look, if you go to uh, any of these farm stores like Rule King or Tractor Supply, they have them in the spring. You know, if the root system looks good, look at the root system, look at the stem of the tree to make sure that it doesn't have a bunch of damage or, or cuts or or scars on it, and then look at the crown of the tree. You know, especially in the spring, it, if you, when you're getting ready to plant the trees, if those buds are getting fat, you know that that's going to be a healthy tree. So, so be selective on which trees you pick out, and then you want a good mix of them. So if you're going to plant 10 trees, I'm going to plant maybe two or three apple trees, a couple pear trees, a couple plum trees, and maybe a peach tree. And the whole idea of that is each tree is going to, flower or bloom differently. And so you really want a good mix of blooms so these trees can cross-pollinate. So so the bees and the pollinators that are coming in to pollinate these trees are just flying all around these trees um, uh, pollinating for, so you can get good fruit production. It's because, you know, if, you're, if all you do is go out and plant, say, for example, an Arkansas apple trees and you plant 10 of those, and you know they produce quite a few flowers but not a lot. You may not be able to attract the pollinators that you want. But if you go in and plant crab apple and plum uh, with those apple trees, crab apples really flower, plums really flower and, and they really smell nice and that's really going to attract the butterflies and the bees, which is going to draw the butterflies and the bees to your apple trees, which is really going to help with the pollination. And so I like a a good mix of fruit trees like that, and you want to plant them in a situation in a in a in a manner in which you know they have plenty of room to grow. I plant them twenty five to thirty feet apart, because once you know the first two to three years of a of, of planting a tree, the after you plant, put a tree in the ground, the first two to three years, it's going to maximize its root growth. You're going to get some crown growth but it's really gonna put a lot of energy into those roots because it it has to have a foundation to hold up that tree. And so you don't really want that tree to put on a lot of new growth that first year. So when you put the tree in the ground and you plant it, you wanna prune that tree back and then you want all that new year's, that first two to three years of growth go into that root system. And so you know once that root system takes off, You'll, you'll see after year three or four that the crown of that tree will just really take off and you don't really have to worry about after, other than when you first plant that tree you don't really have to worry about pruning it for you know maybe another five or six years now you can just you can just let it let it grow unless it's a unless it's a tree that's been there five or six years and you're really starting to get a lot of branches crossing each other and you're getting some wounds then you need then you might want to talk about pruning but you know, pruning is important on the fruit trees, but you know if you don't have time to do it, keep in mind they're fruit trees for deer. You know, you're not you're not an apple orchard where you're selling the apples. If you don't have time to do it, then you don't have time to do it. And and the nice thing about fruit trees are, you know, it's it's not necessarily an essential, uh, but it's just another uh, attractive food source that uh, a mass producing food food source that deer like. Uh, I love persimmon trees. Deer love persimmon trees, and and I like the fruit trees we have on the farm. You know, some years they're really going to produce well, but if we end up getting a late frost, some years they're not going produce to produce that well at all.
2: I, I saw somewhere where you were talking about a really interesting way to get double duty out of your orchards, where you were prescribing the idea of planting soybeans around your orchard trees too. So rather than have just a bunch of weeds growing up and all that open space between your rows, you were actually no-till planting beans in there. Can you describe that idea and, and when or why that'd be appropriate?
1: Sure. so you want to maximize as much land as you can. you know when when you first plant the, your fruit orchard, you know the trees are 25 feet apart or maybe even 30 feet apart because you want to give them plenty of room to grow. Uh, so, in, in order to rather than just going down through there three times a year and mowing it, you might a, might as well utilize that space. So, I've got I've got a couple clients in particular that uh, we planted fruit orchards on, and then I just I know till the soybeans right between the tree rows, um, and it's it, and we just we just and you ha- a that provides a really good forage opportunity. Uh, and B, that you're maximizing your land value that way. Now, one thing we don't do is is I don't go through with a tiller or with a disc or a plow and and do any kind of tillage between those fruit trees because I don't want to damage the roots. But I'm not afraid to pull a no-till drill through it because, you know, that no-till drill is only going down a half inch or an inch. And so you're not damaging the fruit trees that way. The other thing you have to be careful about when you're planting soybeans between fruit trees is uh, fruit trees are very susceptible to uh, herbicide drift and so if you're using a roundup ready soybean and you plant your soybeans between your fruit trees you got to make sure that your herbicide application and the nozzles you are using on your spray equipment are 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 nozzles to where you don't get a lot of drift so uh, i use an air induction nozzle on my spray applicators on my spray applications It it produces a larger droplet, so I get considerably less drift, but when that, that, that herbicide mixes with the air inside that nozzle, and so the larger droplet, when it hits the leaf of the plant that you're spraying, or the weeds that you're spraying, it kind of splatters. So your coverage and your application rate is the same, but your particle size coming out of the nozzle is larger, so you don't get near the drift. And so I have to be real careful when I spray the soybeans close to those fruit trees that my wind direction is appropriate. And the other thing, Mark, that I never do is I never use a 2,4-D based product close to the fruit trees or you will kill the fruit trees Um, because 2,4-D volatilizes really quickly. And those fruit trees will suck that volatilized herbicide gas right into those stomata in the leaves of the fruit trees, and, and you can get some really quick herbicide damage. Uh, so you have to be really careful doing that. But it, it, it there's not a thing wrong with uh, utilizing your land in a way to where, yeah, we've got a new fruit tree planting, um, but now uh, we also uh, have planted soybeans between the fruit trees. You know, the other thing you can do is plant clover between the fruit trees, and you don't have to wor- worry so much about herbicide application. And you've still maximized your land b- value by providing food in the way of clover, but also food in the way of, of the fruit production from the fruit trees.
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh well, Rob, we are running out of time here, um, so I wanna I wanna wrap us up, but I want to give you chance to to get across any one single most important idea maybe that you have in your mind um and I want to pose this to you in an interesting question and see where you take it um if I gave you a billboard on the side of the highway and said you could put whatever message you wanted on that billboard for hunters to see and for land managers to see um what would that message be that you would want everyone driving by to be reminded of and to keep in mind? You'd you'd have to throw one out that has to, makes me think
1: for a minute. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yep. We got to, we got to close with a thinker and, and, feel free to take your time. And, um, you know, this, this could be short and sweet or, or if you want, this could be a very small font, long message on the, on the billboard. But, um, but, yeah, is there any one thing that you think that, that everyone needs to be reminded of or something you're really passionate about that want to make sure we we convey before we wrap this up? Uh,
1: i i I always lean to the first question I ask landowners. You know, I think that billboard i could see I could picture it with some deer out in uh, right next to a woods or feeding in a food pot or something like that, and I think I would have it say, what is the number one limiting factor affecting your deer herd? Food, is it cover, is it shelter? You know, I, I think we, we get caught up way too much in, I didn't put enough supplement out, or I don't have enough, or, or I didn't plant the right uh, clover, or I didn't plant the right food plot. I really like to look at, um, at, at the habitat management, from the standpoint of here's my property what is what am I limited on on this property for my deer to be healthy Um, and you know if if there's one other message I'd like to express to your listeners is um, if you can on your property look at the year-round nutrition you know and year-round nutrition for your deer may not just be food plots it could be early successional food types uh, you know, like that you that can be created from either a prescribed fire or from uh, from a timber harvest by creating those forest openings, uh, you know, or by providing a, a really nice edge along a wood line that isn't just a, a really sharp edge but you know has got a lot of native forage for the deer, you know because when those early successional, species come into a forest floor, whether it's the vegetative or whether it's the, the woody browse, you know, that there's a lot of nutrition there. And, and sometimes I think we have a tendency to miss that because we're so focused on trying to create a food plot or a food source when sometimes, you know, God provides us a really good food source right out there. All we have to do is put some sunlight into the woods.
2: Yeah, that's a great point and easy to uh, easy to lose sight of that with the sometimes, uh more fancy options, but uh, you don't want don't to miss out on what's already there. Rob, this, is, uh, this has been fun. This has been really interesting. And As I'm planning out my 2021 uh, ideas, this is definitely going to help me out. For people that want to learn more from you or get a hold of you to do some work maybe or, or talk about properties, where can, they, where can they find all that stuff? How can they get a hold of you?
1: Uh, they can get a hold of me through my website. Uh, rob at Haubryforestry.com. h-a-u-b-r-y forestry.com um, you know so um, and if, if for some reason they can't find that they can always contact me through whitetailproperties.com and click on in the state of indiana and it'll show all the agents uh, so um, that that's the easiest way to get a hold of me and you know, and some of the YouTube videos and things that Whitetail Properties done on our landbeat episodes, I've had a lot of people email me through, the, through those. And you know, don't hesitate to shoot me an email and ask me a question, and I'll answer it as soon as I can. I, I will admit there there there's every now and then I'll go through a really busy time where you know it might take me a day or two to get a to get an email answered. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I will do my best to get everybody's email answered as soon as I can, but that's probably Mark, the best way to reach me.
2: Perfect. Well, uh, I, I certainly appreciate it, Rob, you are a wealth of knowledge and, uh, and I appreciate your help, not just now, but also this summer helping us pick those perfect trees for our situation. And, uh, and I just want to thank you for, for all the above. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. I appreciate you're very welcome, and I I appreciate you having me on, Mark. And it's always a good time to try to help educate people. And and keep in mind, I'm, you know, I don't have a Ph.D. or anything like that. A a lot of what I've done and and some of my successes have just been through trial and error. So I appreciate you having me on.
2: Hey, you are very welcome. And that trial and error that that's the best education you can get, as far as I'm concerned.
1: That, That is true.
2: All right, and that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you learned something from this one. We're going to head into the new year here very soon. And um, like I mentioned at the top, it's going to be a good year, guys. Let's make that happen. And uh, we're going to kick it off with some good episodes here in the coming weeks and months as we build out new ideas, new plans, new goals, and projects for uh, for a new season. Because this stuff never ends, right? We, uh, we just keep going and going. It's a year-round project, but this is that point to kind of reset. So uh, enjoy a little time off, hopefully. Get your mind right and get ready for a big year. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure
0: a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill.